Since the 1980s, government deregulation has led to an increase in American corporate power. Today, enormous business empires touch the daily lives of most people on the planet. To some, the heads of these companies are entrepreneurial capitalists. They provide competitive jobs to workers and bolster the economy. But to others, they are like dictatorial leaders who exploit workers to feed their wealth and power. CEOs may not hold power through the state, but often their methods still resemble tyranny. That was never more obvious than in the first generation of American capitalist tycoons who seized their power out of the bloody chaos of the Civil War. These men were ruthless, brutal, and flagrant power brokers. They built endlessly multiplying fortunes at any cost. And in the process of grasping an entire nation's wealth for themselves, they earned their title, Robber Barons. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the Gilded Age, when the first American robber barons rose to power. Unlike most traditional dictators, these tyrants used financial power to control the lives of workers and create lasting inequality in the U.S. This week, we'll dive into how unprecedented economic expansion was made possible and how U.S. industrial empires evolved into capitalist dictatorships. Next week, we'll explore the life of one of the era's most notorious robber barons, Andrew Carnegie. An immigrant from Scotland, Carnegie was a prime example of the American dream, rising from poverty to build a steel empire. But building his kingdom came at a steep, violent price. Not for Carnegie, but for the workers that made it all possible. We'll head to 19th century America right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. One of the most influential thinkers in American history was Thomas Jefferson. He was born during the Age of Enlightenment when new liberal ideas challenged the despotism of absolute monarchy. 
With his writings, including the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson crafted the American ideology of individual liberty. In 1785, Jefferson expounded on that belief in a book called Notes on the State of Virginia. In it, he laid out an economic vision for America's future. Jefferson hoped the United States would evolve into an agrarian society. In his view, farm laborers and small-scale property owners were the keepers of American virtue and democracy. But Jefferson believed that two things threatened this future urban industry, and financial speculation. To him, this combination could destroy the independence of the American farmer. If working the land was no longer valuable, then the future of most Americans was in jeopardy. However, after Jefferson died in 1826, the U.S. economy relied more and more on urban and corporate development. Wealth was moving out of the hands of farmers and into the pockets of businessmen with profit shares to offer. Within 50 years of Jefferson's death, the United States entered the Gilded Age, and for many U.S. citizens, the American dream became a nightmare. Broadly speaking, the Gilded Age refers to the period in American history between 1865 and 1900. From the end of the Civil War to the turn of the 20th century, the United States experienced huge waves of industrialization and immigration. This influx of labor and capital set the U.S. on course to become a global superpower. During this period, more wealth was accumulated by Americans than ever before. Whereas fortunes were typically made from annual harvests or the ownership of land and plantations that relied on enslaved labor, now a select few Americans could rise through the ranks in a factory or turn a small stock investment into a bonanza. Massive industrialization created new companies overnight, and those companies generated profits. Profits led to more industrial investments, and the cycle continued. The speed of this industrial growth was unprecedented. And it all began with a simple act of theft. Starting in the mid to late 1700s, Great Britain developed innovative techniques to increase textile production. Along with the emergence of steam power, new machines allowed workers to make cloth faster and cheaper. Samuel Slater, a British industrialist, and Francis Cabot Lowell, an American tourist in Britain, both realized they could make a killing if they got these processes over to the U.S. So they memorized proprietary British machine designs and copied them in the northern United States. In 1793, Slater created the first water-powered cotton mill. Two decades later, Lowell expanded on Slater's work by creating a large factory based around a new power loom. These systems were replicated across New England, bringing textiles to the forefront of America's northern economy. But textiles weren't the only industry to benefit from new innovations. American inventors also turned their attention to guns. In the early 19th century, Firearms were created by hand. It was a laborious task, even for a skilled gunsmith, and it could take months to fill a government weapons contract. 
Worse yet, because the guns were handcrafted, no two were identical. So if one suddenly broke, a soldier couldn't repair it by taking parts from a spare gun. This could have deadly consequences in a battle. It was also dangerous on the western edges of the United States, where settlers often conducted their own vigilante justice and shootouts were frequent. Some early industrialists realized that it would be easier, faster, and cheaper to create interchangeable parts for guns. One of the first inventors to make it happen was gunsmith John Hall. In 1819, Hall accepted a government contract for 1,000 guns. For the next five years, Hall meticulously designed a new rifle. But he also created precise machines to make the rifle's parts. In 1824, Hall presented his rifles for government inspection. The review lasted two years, and 200 guns were disassembled and their parts were mixed up. The rifles were reassembled with random parts from the pile, and not a single one failed to fire. After Hall, interchangeable parts became the bedrock of American manufacturing. Machines made parts, and workers combined the parts into products. With the adoption of the assembly line, a new era truly began, the era of mass production. The techniques used to produce interchangeable firearms were applied to the construction of ships, clocks, sewing machines, and eventually large-scale harvesting equipment. Essentially, we could say that American manufacturing was founded on guns. However, the new wave of mass production brought new problems, like illumination. Up until the mid-19th century, lighting options were limited. Before electricity, people mostly worked during daylight. But with the rise of American manufacturing, factory owners didn't want their profits limited by sunlight. They demanded long hours, meaning work stretched into the darkness of night. The factories needed light. At the time, the most common options were whale oil, coal, or open flames like candles or hearths. But in the 1850s, whale oil prices skyrocketed due to overhunting. Meanwhile, coal was inefficient and open flames were too dangerous for most factories. So industrialists turned to a new product, petroleum. Until the mid-19th century, petroleum, or rock oil, was mostly considered useless. However, in 1853, industrialist George Bissell began to wonder if this flammable rock oil could be used for some practical purposes. Bissell gathered a group of investors and had crude petroleum tested by a chemist to prove it could be refined into a fuel source. With those results in hand, he formed a company devoted to petroleum production. Bissell's new company sent a crew to an area in Pennsylvania called Oil Creek, where they searched for a consistent supply of petroleum. On August 27, 1859, the crew struck a massive deposit of the black liquid. Bissell immediately bought up the surrounding land, sunk a number of wells, and installed pumps to bring up the oil. Within 18 months, he had 75 operational wells and became the world's first oil baron. 
Petroleum provided light for factories and rural communities alike. However, inventors found that oil could be used for even more than illumination. It could also be used for machine lubrication. And in the late 1800s, there was one machine that needed more lubrication than any other, the locomotive engine. In the 1820s, when it came to powering engines, advances in steam engine technology fully replaced horsepower. From there, these steam-powered wagons made their way onto metal rails, where they could move even faster. Thus, the railroad was born. Throughout the 1830s, rail lines were constructed up and down the East Coast. By the 1850s, trains were the primary method of transporting goods along the eastern seaboard. With such widespread success, some businessmen began to wonder if it was possible to build rails across the entire continent. If a railroad accessed the seemingly endless resources of the West, there was no limit to the profit that could be made. Asa Whitney proposed the first transcontinental railroad to Congress in 1845. A few years later, interest in a Pacific Railroad skyrocketed when gold was discovered in California. Throughout the 1850s, government surveyors looked for viable routes across the country. This sparked contentious debates among politicians in Washington. After all, the railroad promised to bring revenue wherever it went. And every politician wanted that revenue for his state. Northern politicians didn't want the route through southern states and vice versa. This led to political deadlock. And by the end of the 1850s, it seemed the Transcontinental Railroad was likely doomed. However, an engineer named Theodore Judah was obsessed with linking the two coasts and refused to take no for an answer. If the government couldn't make it happen, he would. Judah knew that by building the Transcontinental Railroad, he could etch his name into the annals of history and make a fortune. But Judah didn't know that his obsession would also help end a political standstill. Coming up, the Civil War divides the nation and creates an economic boom. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Throughout the early 1800s, the United States economy changed drastically. Innovations in manufacturing, the discovery of petroleum, and the development of steam locomotives set the stage for the young country to become a strong, prosperous nation. But by mid-century, growing tensions between northern and southern states brought that growth to a grinding halt. The dream of a transcontinental railroad which would bring untold resources and wealth, fell into political limbo. However, engineer Theodore Judah was determined to bring the project to fruition, even if it meant sharing the wealth. In 1860, Judah convinced four major California businessmen, including Leland Stanford, to invest in his railroad project. Recognizing the fortune to be made, they joined him to create the Central Pacific Railroad Company. Their timing was perfect, even if it seemed terrible. That same year, Northerner Abraham Lincoln won the presidency, and the southern states began seceding from the Union. And after decades of tension between the northern and southern states over the issue of slavery, the country descended into a bloody civil war in April 1861. For most Americans, this was a dangerous, uncertain time, characterized by violence, blood, and the potential dissolution of the country. But for the railroad industrialists, it was a golden opportunity. With a suitcase full of investor money, Judah and Stanford went to Washington to lobby for federal construction loans. They doled out bribes to politicians to make sure they got a piece of the government's war funding. And they weren't the only ones. Thomas Durant, another regional railroad baron, also saw the Civil War as a cash grab. Like Judah and Stanford, Durant handed out bribes to entice congressmen to support his own railroad project. Though the bribery was greatly appreciated, it wasn't exactly necessary. The war itself was already proving that a national rail system was vital. It would save time sending troops and supplies to distant battlefields, and it could also become a symbol of unity for a divided nation. So in 1862, Congress passed the Pacific Railway Act, which authorized funding for the first transcontinental railroad. The Central Pacific Line would stretch eastward from Sacramento, while the Union Pacific would start in Omaha, Nebraska and head west. Both lines would link up in the middle of the country. Construction began in early 1863. The Central Pacific faced the daunting task of cutting through the Sierra Nevada mountain range. The vast majority of this dangerous work was performed by Chinese immigrants. They used volatile explosives to blast through rock, which led to untold injury and death. 
Meanwhile, the Union Pacific mostly employed Irish immigrants or Civil War veterans. These workers suffered from terrible weather and unreliable supplies. But the workers' injuries and strife meant little to the investors pushing the project to completion. Their profits relied on joining the railroads and running trains, not worrying about their workers. Finally, on May 10, 1869, the two rail lines met at Promontory, Utah, completing one of the most ambitious public works projects in U.S. history. After six arduous years, the American frontier was now open for business, and railroad owners across the country saw the profits roll in. As the country slowly healed from the Civil War, people and products poured into the American West and growing urban centers. Oil, cattle, steel, mining, timber, and whiskey all saw their businesses expand. Congress passed the Homestead Act of 1862, giving 160 acres of Western land to settlers for free for five years. This westward expansion invigorated the economy. New Western towns sprung up, and those towns needed supplies. Meanwhile, in the country's cities, a new wave of European immigrants joined the urban workforce. Factories quickly expanded as the sudden population growth created a new demand for various goods. As these companies grew, so did the nature of American capitalism. The industrial boom led to the rise of the corporation. Prior to the Gilded Age, most business enterprises were small and local. These companies rarely employed over 100 people. In contrast, much larger companies, or corporations, had several advantages. They could survive even if a founder died or was ousted by the other partners. They could also merge with other corporations, leading to bigger conglomerates and trusts. According to author John Steele Gordon, the corporation was a primary reason the railroad industry grew so quickly. Initially, railroad companies were local functions which operated small transportation lines. However, as the industry expanded, these local rail companies merged to form corporations. These mergers created a new standard of business and businessmen. While small business owners had personal ties to their workers and the communities they served, the leaders of corporations were much farther away physically and existentially. Perhaps as a result, they were much more cutthroat and ruthless. All that mattered was gaining profit. With a little time, this attitude edged out competition and ultimately led to just a few men controlling the majority of the nation's rail lines. From there, the corporation boom spread to other industries. Oil baron John D. Rockefeller and steel magnate Andrew Carnegie saw the value of mergers and acquisitions. They also aggressively squeezed out their competition. As the Gilded Age continued, the best part of all major industries were controlled by a small group of men, including railroads, oil, and steel which meant most of the American economy was in their hands. 
These robber barons, like Stanford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller, were able to create vast monopolies because there were no rules to stop them. No one expected American industries to grow so big so fast. Until the Gilded Age, there was no need for corporate regulation. In fact, America's entire financial system, including the stock market and banking, was mostly unregulated. And tycoons used the lack of legal oversight to their advantage, often with dire consequences for ordinary Americans. None was more ruthless than railroad magnate Jay Gould. Gould spent most of his career trying to work the financial sector to his advantage. When he made up his mind that he wanted something, he stopped at nothing to get it, no matter who he had to bribe or bankrupt along the way. Gould also had a trusted business partner named Jim Fisk, who was a bit less cutthroat than Gould. Still, that didn't stop the two partners from becoming the major transporters of wheat in the Midwest. However, the value of wheat wasn't just in the domestic market. There was vast profit in shipping crops to Europe. And Gould and Fisk knew there had to be a way they could encourage the growth of that international market and thus increase their profits. They found their solution in the way wheat was paid for. Gold was used for international transactions because its value was usually stable, unlike paper currency, which fluctuated due to inflation. However, the price of gold did fluctuate occasionally. When it went up, Europeans could buy more wheat with their gold. Gould realized if he and Fisk could raise the price of gold, then it would entice international investors to buy American wheat, which would be transported on their railroads. Only one thing stood in their way, the U.S. government. It held the largest amount of gold bullion in the country. If the government caught wind that someone was manipulating the gold market, then it could sell federal gold to drive prices back down and bust Gould's plan. To prevent this, Gould got in contact with his friend Abel Corbin. Corbin's brother-in-law happened to be the newly elected president, Ulysses S. Grant. Corbin introduced Gould to Grant, and during the summer of 1869, Gould casually convinced Grant not to sell any of the government's gold. By September, Grant didn't plan on selling U.S. gold during that fall. It was the moment Gould had been waiting for. He and Fisk started buying up huge amounts of gold. With this increased demand, the price of gold steadily rose in the U.S. throughout September 1869. It peaked on September 24th. When the commodities market opened that day, the price of gold jumped from $143 to $150. Just before noon, it reached $160, an unheard of amount for that time. Gould and Fisk's plan didn't quite pan out though. Before the high gold values could affect the international wheat market, President Grant realized he'd been conned. He immediately ordered the Treasury to sell $4 million worth of gold to push the price back down. It had the intended effect. The price quickly fell back to $133. 
But not before Gould and Fisk sold off the gold shares they'd accumulated in the previous weeks at an enormous profit. For the speculators, the wheat sales plan may have flopped, but they came out on top anyway. Not so much for the thousands of other investors who were duped into buying gold. After the price crash, many of them were left in financial ruin, especially the ones who'd purchased the gold on credit. Now they were unable to pay back their creditors. Neither Gould nor Fisk faced any legal consequences for their actions. Both men managed to avoid federal charges, and in the process, they revealed how wealthy tycoons could destroy the fortunes of many Americans in order to satisfy their own greed without consequence. It didn't take long for another robber baron to do it again. But this time, the greed risked the collapse of America's entire financial system. Coming up, the Gilded Age becomes a nightmare of corruption and scandal. Now, back to the story. Throughout the second half of the 19th century, the United States experienced an economic boom like never before. The Transcontinental Railroad opened the frontier, and a wave of immigration expanded urban centers and fostered rapid industrialization. With the explosion of American capitalism, much of the economy belonged to the robber barons, and with their monopolies, they could manipulate prices to make themselves richer. However, with so much money at stake, their financial speculation could also put the entire U.S. economy at risk. For example, on September 18, 1873, one of the nation's chief financial leaders, Jay Cook, announced that his bank was closing its doors. Like many bankers, Cook had invested heavily in railroads. Unfortunately, Cook hadn't invested in the Central or Pacific Rail, but in a competing transcontinental line that suffered a financial scandal. Now, he was bankrupt. When Cook shut down his bank, the effects were dire. Railroad companies represented roughly 80% of Wall Street stocks. Because Cook's announcement was related to the railroad, it caused a panic. Investors, especially European ones, worried his bank's collapse meant the railroads as a whole were in trouble, so they sold rail stocks en masse, and the market crashed. The crash halted railroad construction nationwide, banks across the country folded, and prices fell drastically on various commodities. For the next six years, the United States sank into a depression, all thanks to Cook's poor investments. But not everyone suffered. While many businesses collapsed after the 1873 crash, some wealthy robber barons actually got richer. Throughout the 1870s and 1880s, the Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Vanderbilt families took advantage of the Depression. They used their business empires to buy out weakened competitors, they leveraged their monopolies to control market prices, and they made more profit than before the crash. And while the rest of the country was in an economic downturn, these rich families flaunted their wealth. 
The Vanderbilts built audacious mansions, including a 70-room summer home and a 250-room chateau called the Biltmore. A good number of these elites, including Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and Rockefeller, also showed off their wealth through philanthropy. They helped establish universities, public libraries, and scientific institutions. But their contributions rarely helped the workers who actually built and maintained their business empires. Most Gilded Age capitalists squeezed as much profit from their employees as possible, even if it cost lives. Working conditions were extremely dangerous during this period. For example, coal and copper miners faced cave-ins, floods, toxic gas leaks, and fires. Steel workers operated heavy machinery with open furnaces and molten steel. Workplace injuries were constant, and deaths were common. Meanwhile, an injured worker could be easily replaced from the vast pool of immigrant labor. This led to a rise in American prejudice against recent immigrants, specifically Italian, Jewish, and Chinese immigrants. And since there were no minimum wage laws, robber barons could pay whatever they wanted. Some jobs only paid $1.25 for a 12-hour shift. Workers' living conditions were also horrible. In the overcrowded cities, factory workers often had to live in tenements. These apartments were small and packed in as many people as possible. On top of that, sanitation and heating were non-existent. Unsurprisingly, diseases spread rapidly. As the Gilded Age wore on, many laborers grew tired of exploitation. They formed labor unions to fight back with strikes and boycotts, creating one of the first labor movements in the United States. According to journalist Michael Hiltzik, a railroad strike at the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad on July 16, 1877, ushered in a new era of labor rights. This strike spread throughout the region, and roughly one million railroad workers stood in solidarity. However, President Rutherford B. Hayes, a supporter of big business and friend to many robber barons, sent federal troops to quash the protests. The strike ended. Still, it inspired the working class across America to form their own unions and strike back. For example, in 1881, predominantly black washerwomen struck in Atlanta. Miners in Tennessee took up arms at Cold Creek in 1891. Steelworkers at Carnegie's Homestead plant fought on the picket lines in 1892. And in 1894, factory workers struck and boycotted the Pullman Train Car Company. The reason so many strikes were necessary was because the robber barons could end them quickly and brutally. They called upon the Pinkerton Detective Agency, state militias, and federal troops to help quell the uprisings. But even in the face of terrible violence, the strikes continued. And they worked. People started to criticize the robber barons. In reporting on the widespread strikes, journalists increasingly exposed corruption among the rich and powerful. Their articles revealed how tycoons used their businesses to embezzle federal funds and secure political favors. 
Meanwhile, in 1890, photojournalist Jacob Rees published How the Other Half Lives. His photographs showed the reality of life in the nation's tenements and highlighted the working class's horrible living conditions in New York's slums. Throughout the 1890s, this style of investigative journalism, called muckraking, chipped away at the monopolistic power of the robber barons. Until, in 1904, journalist Ida Tarbell published a book called The History of Standard Oil Company. Originally serialized in McClure's magazine, this deep dive into John D. Rockefeller's company showed that Standard Oil had violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890 to prevent large monopolies. However, it was rarely enforced, so conglomerates like the Standard Oil Company, U.S. Steel, and the American Tobacco Company thrived without oversight. But in the wake of Tarbell's discoveries, President Theodore Roosevelt, a self-proclaimed trust buster, ordered an investigation into Rockefeller and his company. Just four years later, in 1906, the government filed a suit against the oil company. In the end, Standard Oil was forced to break up into multiple entities. And that was merely the beginning. By the late 1900s, public outrage over corruption and inequality ushered in the Progressive Era. In this period, social reforms like ending child labor, the eight-hour workday, and women's suffrage put economic power back into the hands of the workers. The robber barons were no longer in control of the American economy, and the Gilded Age was over. It's notable that this whirlwind era of industrialization and monopolistic wealth wasn't known as the Golden Age, but the Gilded Age. Gilding is the process of placing a very thin layer of gold on something for decorative purposes. The term implies applying a superficial shine in order to disguise a shoddy situation. Mark Twain is credited with popularizing the term in his 1873 satire, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. Twain could see that American prosperity was a sham. Just beneath the surface of wealth and prosperity for the robber barons, the rest of America was suffering. For 35 years or so, industrial tycoons held the real power in the United States. Their enormous wealth bought them whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it. Cornelius Vanderbilt perfectly summed up the mindset of the robber barons when he reportedly exclaimed, quote, What do I care about the law? Ain't I got the power? Vanderbilt was right. He, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Henry Ford ran the industry of the nation, and in many ways, the nation itself. They not only built America, they controlled it. The United States has never had a traditional dictator. Instead, it had the robber baron. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the life of steel baron Andrew Carnegie. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra with writing assistance by Tony Goodman, Andrew Messer, and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.